All right, let's go Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, you'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have the physical Bible scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Um, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, and if you uh, got 20 minutes, I'll tell you about it later. Um, but here's the deal. Welcome to the Thunderdome, everybody. Um, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we're kicking off a brand new series this morning, uh, looking at the very first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, Lord willing, it'll take us eight weeks to, to pull off. Um, and so the plan is to do some setup work this morning uh, by looking at all of chapter 1 of Revelation. And, I, and I, that's a big task. There's a lot there. Um, it's got a lot of ground to cover, but I think that we can get it in uh, if we have a little bit of some urgency in our, in our footpath. Um, the plan is to set everything up this week and then to spend a week each on each of those seven churches, therefore eight weeks. You, you know how to do that kind of math, right? I know, at least I know how to do that kind of math. Right. And so um, the reason that we're stopping of chapter 3 is not, not uh, because the rest of the letter isn't interesting or incredibly valuable for the church. I think they certainly, it certainly is. Um, it's because uh, there are so, hear me, so many interpretive lenses to consider uh, as, as you're walking through reading and trying to understand the book of Revelation. Uh, There's so many interpretive lenses uh, to consider uh, that we would need to try to give honest and fair airtime to uh, that um, it doesn't lend itself very well to Sunday morning uh, proclamation, uh, at least not in the way that we prefer to do Sunday morning proclamation. Uh, um, I'd either need to teach my view of Revelation or um, I'd need to spend an incredibly large amount of time going through all the different angles that you can look at it um, and truth be told, I don't want to be studying the book of Revelation for the next four years, all right? Because that's, that's what it would take, because you multiply by multiply by multiply. We'll get into it. All right, so um, one of these days, maybe we can sit down and dig, t dig into it on a less formal, uh, maybe Wednesday night kind of uh, uh, informal Bible study. But uh, until then, the first three chapters are just going to have to do for us. Uh, but listen, I'm not so naive as to think that you're like, aren't super curious about where I land on a bunch of stuff and that you're all going to go like reading the book of Revelation on your own. All right. And so at the end of our time this morning, all right, at the end of our time this morning, I'll tell you where you can find a resource that we made, our elders and I uh, made to help you understand all of the different interpretive lenses for the book of Revelation. All right. And so that you can go read that book on your own with lots of confidence and probably a thousand more questions than you thought you had. All right. Um, but not until the end, though. Why? Because I don't trust you to wait. All right. <laughs> so what's so special about Revelation? Well, uh, and, then, and then what would be so special about the first three chapters as a standalone series? Well, for starters, the tone and the genre stand apart from everything else in the Bible. Uh, and they do by a landslide. Uh, the entire book is a letter. All right? there, it opens uh, with a standard New Testament uh, greeting. And it, uh, it, it ends like a standard New Testament epistle would end. All right? uh, but the body of the letter, everything in between those, that opening, that greeting, and that, that closing, uh, everything in the middle is what we would call apocalyptic literature. All right? uh, and despite what people, some, some people might think, apocalyptic is not just another word for prophecy. All right? Those aren't the same things. There's some nuance there. Apocalypse is a Greek word, all right? and it means to reveal, to make something known. To, it's a disclosure of what was previously not understood by the audience. All right? uh, but while prophecy is, is a clear word from the Lord, 
Apocalyptic literature takes a step well beyond that uh, by, by intentionally using over-the-top imagery as symbolism for something else, all right? And so if you want to kind of think of it that way, it's, it's not a perfect fit, but the best way I like to explain what apocalyptic literature is, is to take prophecy and allegory and smash them together until you can't tell the difference, all right? That's what's going on here. And while there are apocalyptic elements in a few Old Testament writings, writings like Daniel and Ezekiel, Zechariah, nothing in the Bible, nothing else in the Bible is wholly devoted to it as its main genre. It just dabbles a little bit and then comes back. But Revelation dives all the way into the deep end of the pool. All right? Stepping outside of the Bible, however, Apocalyptic literature was all over the place, especially at the time that John is writing. Uh, it was really, really popular just as a, as a, a cultural phenomenon um, during what we would call the intertestamental period and then the first couple of centuries A.D. And so we have stories written during this time period uh, like the book of Enoch, the apocalypse of Baruch, the story of the Jubilees, the assumption of Moses, the Psalms of Solomon, testaments of the 12 patriarchs, the Sibylline oracles, which sounds really cool and classy. Right? Uh, but one of the hallmarks of apocalyptic literature is that it's always written in a false name. Always. And everybody knows it. And that's kind of the fun behind it, all right? All of these really famous stories are written in about a three to 400-year window, starting in about 200-ish uh, B.C., uh, but all of them are attributed to guys that lived way earlier than that, hundreds of years, and in a couple of cases, a thousand-plus years before they were written, all right? Which means that they're all telling stories describing current events under the guise of someone else living in a previous time going, I see a vision. And then they go on to explain a bunch of stuff, current event stuff, that in incredibly fanciful terms. It's, that, that's just the way the genre tended to work. And, and that, that, that purpose was usually to move the needle on some political things that they wanted to move the needle on. All right? That was the whole point of apocalyptic literature. To, to hearken back to a time long ago and say, oh, we saw this coming, and do it with kind of tongue-in-cheek. But the writer of Revelation wrote about things that hadn't happened by the time of his writing. He's talking about the end of the world. And what's more, he signed it with his own name. He signed it with his own name. It's John, as in John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John and then the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Okay, but like, how do we know? I mean, we're 2,000 years-ish removed from that. How do we know that it wasn't some other guy writing it, attributing it back to the Apostle John? Well, it's because we had, have evidence of people who were friends of John, people who are alive at the same time as John, saying, yeah, that belongs to John. We can point to their work and say, yeah, John wrote that. Now, that doesn't mean that John's authorship is not without controversy. There are a small group of people out there that argue that it couldn't possibly be the Apostle John. It must be some other John, a guy, a guy they call John the Elder. Right? And so that sounds like a classy title. But it's not because of the timeline issues. It's because they look at the writing of Revelation and they compare it to, to John the Apostle's other writings and they, they argue that the Greek doesn't look the same. That the Greek is not as refined as the stuff that we do know that John wrote. And that's actually really, really true. Um, Revelation is kind of a mess. Uh, the, the Gospel of John is easily, by a landslide, the prettiest Greek in the New Testament. Revelation is the ugliest Greek in the New Testament. <laughs> All right? um, but, but grammar and vocabulary, like th those differences don't automatically mean that someone else had to have wrote, written it, right? 
His gospel and the epistles that bear his name all are all composed in incredibly different circumstances and incredibly different times. I mean, my writing style fluctuates just with how close it is getting to like lunch, right? <laughs> Hangry Stephen writes very differently than a Stephen who's just eating a lot of tacos. Can, we be, can I get an amen, right? Now, in Revelation, John is exiled on the island of Patmos, just, uh, which is just off the coast of, of modern-day Turkey. Uh, and, and according to the history that's been handed down to us, uh, stuff that other guys wrote, it's not in the Bible, but other guys wrote about the time period, uh, he's on that island uh, because opponents of his tried to kill him, and it didn't work, and so they exiled him instead. Like, that's how he landed on Patmos. And then he's given this incredible vision right, with a whole bunch of fantastic apocalyptic imagery and he's told to write it all down and send it to some churches uh, that Jesus wants to address. Like, uh, I mean, that's a lot going on. Are we all going to agree that that's a lot going on? If you had that going on in your week, how would you be dealing with the vocabulary issue? <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's a little unfair to critique John's writing in that moment. Well, you know, John, this isn't your best work. I'd like to see more effort out of you. Same, John, same. <laughs> I heard that critique all growing up through school. So the tone and the genre of Revelation is an incredible thing, but the first three chapters are special for uh, another reason. Uh, because despite whatever interpretive lenses you want to try to use to understand the letter, and there, there are literally dozens of them, despite whatever interpretive lenses that you want to try to use, there are a lot of possible interpretive lenses, but far more than people are, are aware of in my experience. But regardless of the interpretive lens, the first three chapters still stand alone uh, with the exact same message. No matter which pathway you want to try to, to walk with the book of Revelation, the first three chapters kind of stand on, on top. Actually, it's probably better to say they stand underneath because they serve as the foundation for everything else. Uh, the interpretive lenses may steer the ship in, in chapters 4 through 22, uh, but the message of chapters 1 through 3 are the foundation that all of the, uh, the different lenses rest upon. You miss that message? And none of the interpretive lenses will help you in your Revelation study at all. You'll just make a mess of things. So we're going to build a whole series off of that initial foundation. And then later, I'll tell you where to find some tools to help you read it on your own. So you ready to look at it? Revelation 1, starting in verse 1, says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel uh, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. All right, so another, another neat little kind of distinction between Revelation and the rest of the New Testament epistles is that Revelation gets a prologue. All right, none of the other epistles get that. Right, the letter doesn't technically start until verse 4, uh, but John wants to give us some background. All right, he wants to set the stage. It's what good prologues do. They, they, they pull you into the story even before the story begins. And what's cooler is that John seems to do this in the third person. It's a trick that he's going to use over and over again throughout the rest of this letter. And I think he does it probably to walk a fine line between being a dumbfounded witness of what he's seeing and then trying to also be a faithful witness to what he's seeing. And so he pulls himself out of the story and just talks like he's a, he's a participant sometimes. He moves back and forth between being in control of himself and 
being blown away by what's going on. But even before he gets into the vision he's supposed to report, he gives an important introduction. He says, hey guys, this isn't for me. This isn't a word, a quick word from your old buddy John. No, this is a revelation of Jesus. And it's my job to faithfully pass on that revelation. But this revelation isn't merely for entertainment purposes. It it isn't to move the needle on some political things that that John wants to see the needle moved on. No, Jesus wishes to accomplish something uh, in his churches uh, by giving it. So John says, blessed are those who read it and who hear it and who keep what is written. In In other words, this revelation is intended to encourage those that it's being given to. Oh, okay. Okay, but um, encourage them for what? Well, we were tipped off by the very last words of verse 3, right? For the time is near. So something's coming. And whatever that something is, apparently it's important enough or a big enough deal that encouragement is going to feel pretty important, right? But prologues just set the scene, so now it's time to get into the letter itself. Look at verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. All right, so there are a couple of things to to note here, at least a couple to me. Um, One, that greeting sounds like it could have been ripped straight from the pages of anything Paul wrote, right? Greetings. Grace and peace to you. But two, John starts out by throwing an absolute bomb here. Um, The greeting does not merely call for grace and peace for the audience. No, uh, it does so by invoking God in what seems to be full Trinitarian form. That's not something we see a lot in the Bible, but we seem to see it here. Uh, He's called the one who is and who was and who is to come, which is interesting because Jesus specifically is called that in a lot of different places. In fact, he's going to be called that specifically in just a few verses later in this letter. But then he says, he mentions Jesus separately and from Jesus Christ. And so it seems like the one who was and is and is to come is actually a reference to the Father. I don't know, it kind of calls back to Moses at the burning bush, right? I am. I will be. So we have what seems to be a reference to the Father, and we have an explicit reference to the Son, but then in the middle of that, uh, we also get our first little glimpse of something in Revelation that doesn't make immediate sense, right? Um, we're told the greeting is also from, quote, the seven spirits who are before his throne. So what in the world is that about? Well, this is actually a really good moment to teach uh, an interpretive principle uh, that's going to come up a few times in our eight-week series, but definitely come up a ton as you're reading Revelation for yourself. Uh, You need to have a kind of a mental check-down list uh, for how you arrive at figuring out what imagery means in this letter, right? Uh, A check-down. And I know a lot of you aren't football fans. I'm fully aware of that, but bear with me because the ones who are and understand the lingo will immediately change how they read this book forever, right? So picture in your head, right, a quarterback who's just snapped the ball and they're going through uh, their receiver progression. Everybody's doing their route and they are working their way down the field. Is option A open? No. Is option B open? No. Option C, let's go. 
Right? That's what's going on in a check down. Right? Right? So you start off by asking, does John immediately tell us what this image represents? Yes or no? If that guy's the receiver, if that receiver's not open, what do you do? You move to the next receiver. Right? If the answer is yes, well, then that's what it means, period. Right? That guy's open, you throw the bomb. If the answer is yes, we don't get to add a, a bunch of new kind of modern meanings to sort it out and to, on top of it, uh, on top of what we're told the meaning is. We just go with what, what we're told the meaning is. All right? Uh, but here's the deal. We, we don't always get that explanation. It's really nice when we do. It's really nice when option A on the receiver tree is open. But oftentimes they're not. And so if the answer is no, well, then you move to the next question. Does John tell us what it means somewhere else in the letter? Yes or no? If, you're, if no, your next question is, does he explain another image that kind of seems like it's basically a different word for the exact same thing? Yes or no? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> if you're still coming up with those, then you step outside of Revelation. You go to other places in the Bible, especially Old Testament apocalyptic imagery. All right? uh, is that image explained anywhere else in uh, the, the biblical canon? If yes or no. And if it's not, if it's not, well, you step even outside of the Bible and ask, is that image used in other uh, extra biblical apocalyptic writings of the time period? Read through the titles I listed off or a little bit earlier. Uh, even the non-canonical writings, they recycle a lot of the same imagery. John knew about a lot of those writings. He'd probably read some of them. And he's writing in the same style on purpose. The vocabulary is not new to him or to his audience. And so if it's used somewhere else in a very specific way, it's probably true that John means that too. But listen, if you've, got, if you've gone through your entire check down, and nobody's open, then, and hear me, only then are you allowed to dump it off in the flat. All right? You make a non-committal but still somewhat educated guess about what the image might, emphasis on might, represent. Now, if you, if you don't understand football and you have no idea what just came out of my mouth, first of all, welcome back to football season. It's going to be a long few months for you. But secondly, just remember that to elaborate conclusions that think that every fantastic image must mean China and Black Hawk helicopters is a good way to get yourself put on the bench. Because it's not, it's not the way good football is run. It's not the way good Bible interpretation is run. Um, so using our, our check down, what should, what should we make of seven spirits surrounding the throne? Well, John doesn't explain it here. But this is an image that's repeated several other times in the book. Um, but here's the complication. He doesn't explain it in those places either. So what do we do? We step outside of Revelation and start looking around to see if that image is used anywhere else in the Bible. And a lot of people, a whole bunch of people think that John is describing the Holy Spirit in the same way that he seems to be described in Isaiah 11.2. Isaiah 11, 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I mean, that does make seven. But let's be honest, this feels like a dump it in the flat kind of moment, isn't it? And so it's time for a non-committal, educated guess. It's, it's hard to point to anything that's crystal clear, but based on where it is, 
sandwiched in between a greeting of what seems to be the Father and the Son. And based on how the picture is used both here and what seems to be other parts of the letter, sure, that works. Okay. Could we be wrong about that? Yeah, we could. (laughs) Is that okay? Yeah, that's also okay. So that's what we got. But do you notice the disconnect? Do you notice the disconnect between these two verses, 4 and 5, and what we were left hanging with at the end of verse 3? John hints that there's a problem at the end of verse 3 that's going to need some encouragement. But maybe, I don't know, maybe that problem is a lot smaller than the one who's actually in charge. This letter exists for the purpose of encouraging you because the time is near. And oh, oh, by the way, God in all of his triune glory says hi. That's the tone. Well, let's look at what he says next. Look at the second half of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, so the greeting may, may be from the full Godhead, but John seems to now be zeroing his focus in more and more, specifically in on Jesus. He's the faithful witness, we're told, right? Now, he, he's, not only is he the firstborn from the dead and, and the ruler of the kings of earth, and now Jesus seems to be getting this title of was and is and is to come almighty attached specifically to himself. So we're dealing with some pretty high and exalted language here, right? We're painting a, a pretty elaborate and exalting picture of Jesus. But then John also describes Jesus in unbelievably relational language. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood. Jesus doesn't just love us in a way that we tend to undersell that idea in our world. No, 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 no. no. Jesus' love is sacrificial and it's effectual for his good purposes. It is a costly love that accomplishes all he intends to accomplish. And so what does Jesus' love produce? Well, first he saves us from the wrath earned by our sin, but also, according to this text, He's made us known and priests to God. We are united to him, standing as representatives for him to the world. And so what, whatever's coming down the pipe for, for John's audience, and, and then for these seven churches specifically, and then we could you know, extrapolate out of that and for us more generally, it's not coming to those who are alone. It's not. It's not not coming to those who who need to worry in some kind of inordinate way. No, circumstances are not teetering here in some kind of weird balance, ready to fall one way or the other based on uh, a couple of moments that we might have the ability to uh, influence and pan out. No, uh, that idea is doubled down on in verses 7 and 8. There there may be something big coming down the pipe, uh, but Jesus claims to be the one who will one day stand in final judgment of whatever that thing is. Oh, and all the other things too. 
He claims to be the Alpha and the Omega. And if you didn't know, those are the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so it's like saying A to Z. And, and so Jesus is saying that he's at the beginning and at the end. He was there when it started, putting it all together. And he will be there when it's over, tearing it all down for his glory. He's the bookends on every ounce of the story. Look at verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to seven, uh, the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So in, in verse 9, in verse nine uh, we start to get a little more information about what's, what's going on here. Uh, John tells us that he's on the island of Patmos and that it's on account of him preaching the gospel. Over and over again, uh, the apostles, all, they all got in prison for preaching about Jesus. It just happened a lot. And, and depending upon exactly when you date this letter, uh, there are some who think it, happened, it was written as early as the mid-60s AD. And they've got some intelligent-sounding reasons for that. Uh, but most common theory, though, uh, the one I ascribe to is that John wrote it in the mid-90s AD. So some 30 years after that earlier date. Um, and if it's written at that later date, mid-90s, well, then all the other apostles have been killed off by now. That's fun. Martyred for the cause of the gospel by those who didn't like the testimony of Jesus. John is exiled to Patmos. Apparently, it's the Lord's Day, so it's Sunday morning. And then all of a sudden, he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. All right, boy, write this down. Write what you see. And then John is told to send this letter to seven churches, and they list off what those seven churches are. Why seven? I don't know. Uh, is it, are there more than seven churches in the ancient world this time? Yeah, a lot more. Um, surely there are more churches than that, and certainly there were, but seven would have seemed like a good round number to John and his audience, like the way that we think of ten. So it's probably, again, dump it into the flat, probably um, that those seven would stand in a, as a kind of representative of all churches across all of time. But here's the important thing we need to notice. They aren't just creative or symbolic names. They're the names of ancient cities in what's now modern Turkey. Uh, because our church is super, super generous, I, I got the chance to visit six of those seven cities last November. Y'all sent me on a trip, toured several archaeological sites uh, in Greece and Turkey, and, and it was an amazing trip. Couldn't, couldn't be more grateful. And in fact, say the, the, the quiet part out loud, I never would have gotten a chance to do that if our church wasn't awesome and people in our church didn't make that happen. So thank you. But being able to visit most of those sites directly influences a couple of kind of larger debates that people often have about the book of Revelation, specifically about these first three chapters of the book. Um, these, are, these are real places. There's, these are real places, real people uh, making up real churches in real space and time. There are people out there who try to argue 
uh, try to view the entire book of Revelation as a, as a linear chronology, and they can, they, specifically the letters to the seven churches, as kind of a mini timeline within that linear chronology. Uh, and they'll, they'll argue that these seven churches are meant to represent different stages in church history. And, and then they'll, they'll try to even put their finger on where they believe we are currently sitting in the timeline. Oh, oh we, we, I think we've reached the age of the church of Smyrna. That, that's kind of how the argument goes. I don't think that those guys are right. But even if they are, even if they are, even if these churches are pointing to larger symbolic stages in a linear timeline, we're still talking about an original audience that deeply mattered to Jesus. And they mattered a lot. These churches all had unique personalities, and they had leaders with different aptitudes and different weaknesses, and they had things that they were pretty good at, and maybe it even gained a little bit of a reputation for, and they also had some things that they were not so good at and often needed to repent of. And because there is a primary, real-life, original audience being aimed at in this moment, it ought to shape how we begin to interpret all the extra-fanciful future stuff. Things can have a greater fulfillment in Jesus. They often do. But they must also have an obvious fulfillment for the folks who are getting this letter straight from John. He's writing it to them. And God saw fit to give it to us, but he's writing it to them. So so John's hanging out on Patmos. He hears a loud voice telling him to write down everything that he sees and and to send it on to a handful of churches. And if, if, if you're in John's situation, what are you doing next? Because I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to turn around and see who's talking to me. Aren't you? Well, guess what John does in verse 12? It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Well, there's a picture. How'd you roll out of bed this morning? John turns around to see who's talking to him and he's met with a vision of Jesus that's just a smidge more glorious than the last time they hung out together, right? We'll get to the, symbolic, the more symbolic imagery later but in a second, but most of what John just said is just incredibly vaulted and poetic language for talking about Jesus' radiance. He says that his voice is like roaring waters. Got a chance to go to Niagara with the kids a couple of weeks ago. You get in the boat, you start making your way into the horseshoe, and you stop being able to hear each other. If you've been in a situation where roaring waters deafens you, you understand, right? Says his face is shining like the sun. Says that his clothes, he's clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Uh, in that culture, work clothes would have been short so that you know, they don't get in the way of stuff. All right? And long robes and sashes are pretty much the exact opposite of what you would wear when you're in the middle of a project. That's why they girded up their loins, right? And so this seems to be Jesus' making impression clothes, and they're working. He's making an impression. But it's not just the clothes and his 
They have a different appearance. We're also told that, that Jesus' hair is white, like both wool and snow, that his eyes were like a flame of fire. His, if, if apparently his sun, his face was as bright as the sun, but his eyes, you can still see. I don't know. All right? I don't know how that works. All throughout the Old Testament, we see an intentional celebration of gray hair. It's always a sign of wisdom to the Jewish mind. Uh, but this goes well beyond that because apparently Gandalf the Grey has just become Gandalf the White. Some of y'all got that. All right. If I can't get you with a football reference or a Lord of the Rings reference, I don't know how to get you. All right. Jeez, John pulls this imagery straight from Daniel 7, right? Straight from Daniel 7. First of all, he calls him the son of man. But also, he says uh, in Daniel 7, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. It's a situation where you see it, and you immediately understand that you're, you're dealing with someone with a capital S that is incomprehensibly ancient and incomprehensibly wise. And incomprehensibly pure and incomprehensibly powerful. It's not just, this is not a picture of frailty here. There's nothing weak in this moment. We are beholding someone who is everlasting, we're told. John tells us that his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the fire. Some people try to argue that that's maybe a reference to the color of Jesus' skin, which may not be far from the truth, but it's definitely missing the point. Um, Jesus is, just like his hair being white, this simile carries a message as well. And I know that burnished bronze in our culture has become a thing that we make like fancy door handles and like sink fixtures out of. But like to a first century audience, that would have immediately been understood as weapon making material. And apparently the, they just came out of the furnace. It seems to be enemy stomping time. But as crazy as that is, there are a couple of even more symbolic pictures that just blow them out of the water uh, that John just mentions. <laughs> There's a two-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. Which, can, can we say, say it? That seems like a dumb place to keep a sword. It's exactly the kind of thing that Will Woodard would do. I would have taught him that. All right. Now, obviously, the picture's meant to be something other than a literal sword in a mouth. Right? So, so what could it mean? Well, not only do we have both Old and New Testament examples to point to, but John clarifies what he means later in the letter. We don't have to go so far down the check down. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. When Jesus speaks, His Word cuts right to the bottom. When it comes time to judge, listen, there will not be a debate. He will not be asking for others' opinions. No, Jesus will speak, and that will be the end of it. But then we have this, some other stuff going on here. Back, back up in verse 12, we see that he's standing among seven golden lampstands. And in verse 16, we're told that he's holding seven stars. So what's that about? Well, what's the very first question on the check down? Does John explain what the pictures mean? And in this case, he does, but not yet. He's going to explain what he means by that all the way down in verse 20, a few verses later. So I'm going to follow his lead and wait too. All right. But look at verse 17. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. All right. So we're still in the middle of Jesus is more awesome than your problems mode, 
All right. Um, and in addition to being the eternal one, unchallenged in wisdom and unchallenged in purity and unchallenged in power, in addition to his unfathomable love to save sinners by laying down his own life, we are also told that he is the one who defeated death by rising again from the grave. And because he has defeated death itself, he now holds the keys, meaning he's the one in charge. And so when you pile all these realities on top of each other, when you, when you begin to see Jesus standing there in his full glory, what is the right way to respond? Well, John shows us. What does he do? Falls down like a dead man, we're told. See, apparently, to see Jesus correctly is to immediately understand that you probably shouldn't be standing in his presence. Time to hit the deck. Oh, but John's his boy, though. Isn't he the one, the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved? John's his guy. Yeah, yeah, he is. And John is also a creature encountering the full glory of his creator. And so the involuntary reaction in this moment is the correct reaction. But look at what happens next. Immediately after that, we're told that Jesus lays his hand on him and says, Fear not. But hear me, church, we need to be incredibly careful not to misread what John just wrote. You miss what's actually said here and you get the gospel wrong. Notice that Jesus did not say, oh, stop it, John, I don't deserve that. (laughs) You misunderstand who I am. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. I I don't deserve that kind of response from, from you. No, Jesus absolutely deserves that kind of response from him. Nor... Nor does Jesus say something like, oh, don't worry, buddy. I think you're pretty valuable, too. If you can only see you like I see you. That's not what's going on. No, Jesus tells John what it is that Jesus has done so that John doesn't have to fear him. He says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Church, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus alone that bridges the gap between sinful creatures and our glorious God. Nothing else bridges that gap. It is his sacrifice on the cross that soaks up every drop of the wrath that our sin has rightly earned. It is his victorious resurrection over the grave that serves as the down payment of rest for those united not only in his death, but also in his life. Christian, our God is good and he has purchased, and the right, right word is purchased. He has purchased the right to hold the keys. And because those two things are true, the security of those who belong to him are ne- is never, ever in doubt. The one who is ancient and wise and pure and powerful and loving, he also carries with him full, and hear me, final authority. There's no question here. There's nobody coming in after saying, I have a competing claim. It belongs to him and him alone. And yet, oh, and yet we're told that he stoops low. And he lays his hand on us. He says, fear not, I got it. I got it. Look at verse 19. It says, right therefore, The things that you have seen, 
the things that you have, I'm sorry, right therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in my head, I imagine Jesus picking John up, dusting him off and reminding him of what he's supposed to be doing right now. Same John, same. I need that too. Not just what you see right now, but write down also what you're about to see. And then to our great benefit, Jesus explains to John what it is he just saw with all the stars and the angels and the lampstands. So there's no room for speculation here. The check down stops at question number one. Jesus is addressing this letter to seven churches, and so he's got seven stars in his hands, which are supposedly a picture of angels representing these seven churches, which I'm guessing you can imagine just how much debate that creates. Um, Lots of different ideas and opinions about that. Um, either, Either John literally means angels in that moment, or it's another symbol a symbolic picture and the stars are a picture for a picture. And that gets really, really complicated. Um, people in the literal angel camp also come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, a small number, a very small number, argue uh, that it's like some kind of guardian angel figure uh, that gets assigned, uh, to, assigned to each church. And if that were actually true, do you, can you imagine how frustrated our angel would be? <laughs> Calling in sick all the time, I can't come in, I got a migraine. <laughs> Now, the truth is, we don't really have anything else in the Bible that would even suggest or hint that that's a real thing. Um, The Greek word for angel is just a messenger. That's all it is. Um, And so we've got to distance ourselves from any kind of unbiblical ideas that we might have picked up in the 90s from Touched by an Angel uh, or other nonsense that you might see scrolling through Facebook today. Facebook theology is always the worst kind of theology. Um, In the Bible, angels serve a utilitarian purpose. They carry the word of the Lord. That's their job. And so literal angels are not, and we can have the debate over that, but literal angels are not. Their purpose is to carry a message back to these respective churches. That's their their role. Which is why there are also several people who argue that John maybe doesn't mean literal angels in this moment, that it's some kind of picture and that they're supposed to represent something else. And some argue that these messengers are actually the leaders, preachers of these churches because they're messengers to the churches. That would be how that works. Um, Others argue that it's even more abstract than that, that these figures represent the churches on a personality level. You got some some wonky theories out there. Go look and you can find them. All right. But even though the first image is complicated, the seven stars in his hand, the second image Jesus explains is not complicated at all. He's got seven lampstands, which are supposed to represent these churches. Oh, but why lampstands? Well, it harkens back to something Jesus spent a whole lot of time teaching about. A whole lot of time teaching about the light of the gospel. Lampstands don't produce light. They hold up the light, right? A lampstand can be decorative. You can have a pretty lampstand. That's allowed, but... But its purpose is functional. It's got a real-world job to do. And a lampstand that's merely decorative and not holding up a light is in the way. It's a wasted opportunity. As, as we get into these letters over the next several weeks, Jesus is sometimes going to have several things to celebrate about these churches. He's, he's going to applaud them in all kinds of things. 
But he's also going to have a whole long list, a real long list of several important things to critique. And the threat, the threat is that if those things don't change in a timely manner, he will remove their lampstand. In other words, he's got no purpose for mere decoration. And he will cause them to cease to be a church. Oh, but I thought you said that God's people don't have to fear because Jesus is in in control and we've been fully reconciled uh, because of what he did. Yeah, I I did say that. Absolutely. And, And because of that reality, we truly never have to fear the outcome. But that promise is given to individuals, not to churches. Not to churches. Churches can come and go. Ours has. Ours came at a specific time. And one day, one of these days, it might go at a specific time. Churches can come and go. Churches can be established or torn down. And the one who is incomprehensibly ancient and incomprehensibly wise and incomprehensibly pure and incomprehensibly powerful and, yeah, even incomprehensibly loving, the one who holds all authority as keys in his hand on heaven and earth, he's got a word for these churches. He's got some things to say to real people making up real churches in real space and time with all of their unique personalities, with their leaders, with aptitudes and weaknesses, the uh, stuff they were good at, stuff that they were not good at. And it will not be hard at all. Any kind of honest reading of these three chapters, it will not be hard at all to see ourselves in several places in these letters. And I think that's Jesus' greater purpose for allowing it to be passed down to us. I think John... He had John write him down, not just for these seven churches, but also for you and me. And I'm excited to see how he might grow us in some good and necessary things. But what do we do with this stuff today? Well, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our response is the standard one. We repent of sin and we lean into what God reveals about himself in the text. And this week, I think our response probably needs to come in the shape of lifting up the level of our eyes. We take our focus off of the circumstances around us and place it on the one who will one day stand in judgment over that circumstance. He's bigger than all the bad things. And he alone gets to define what's in the category of the good things. Mostly, I think we probably just need to think about ourselves a whole lot less because the second John turned around, the, the involuntary response was the correct response. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. That's, that's a time that we set aside to give you space to respond, uh, to put some personal action to just the head knowledge. If you want to talk, I'll be down front. Well, what about those of us, those of you who aren't followers of Jesus yet? How can you respond? Well, simple. You, you can respond by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all by default separated relationally from God and that, that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls that punishment hell. And make no mistake, Jesus is the one who holds the keys. No, one's in, no one ends up there by accident. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, he makes us alive together through the grace of Christ. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that you and I can't live and he died on the cross as a, as a sacrifice, a, a sacrifice to, to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. 
And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to, make, uh, to, to respond to him, to, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. You can do that today. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way, whether that's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's time to finally be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's time to make a, some kind of public a decision to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I can help. I'm here for it. But let's pray and be dismissed. Let's all respond um, however the word's calling you to this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for a complicated letter at the end of the Bible. God, we want to be faithful. We want to be malleable. And we want to see your glory far more than getting the answers to the complicated questions. As we begin to walk through this series, we're not, we're not going to be every church. In fact, we're probably not going to... We're going to have some things that go well and some things that maybe don't go well at all. But you are good. And if nothing else, you've given us this grace of getting to see what is pleasing to you for the, the churches that bear your name. And so God, as we begin to dig into these, this stuff, uh, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us courage? And would you help us find rest when there are things that are worthy of celebration? We love you. Thank you for loving us. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? <laughs> give them a Give them a fall down as a dead man kind of moment. Forever change them. You are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.